Testing. Test, test.
All right. Good morning, everybody. Guten Tag. Buenos dias. Welcome back. So we are we're finishing off Mark today. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's good and bad, right? I mean, we, we've been in Mark for this entire school year, haven't we? I think it's been the entire school year. So finishing off the school year, graduating from Mark. I'm kidding about the graduating, but we're we're moving on from um, from Mark to next week. We'll start the book of Galatians in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters. In fact, um, what is believed to be Paul's first letter, the book of Galatians. So we'll um, we'll jump into that next week. Pastor Dan will kick off, and then uh, I'll be with you in a couple weeks to start the beginning of the gospel, or the gospel, the, the beginning of the book of Galatians, and then, um, yeah, so we'll do that through the summer. We haven't decided what we'll do in the fall yet, but um, we'll go Galatians all the way through the summer. Did you finish Mark? Did, uh, we're finishing Mark today. Did I? Oh, you mean my dissertation and all that? Oh, no, I'm far from finishing my dissertation. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, I have not finished that yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's not just something I do over the weekend, <laughs> so, or even in a couple months. So it, yeah, it's a, it's a big, it's a, it's a process. Yeah. Um, welcome to those who are online as well today. I do have my chat up. Um, those of you who are online on Facebook, you already saw me chime in and say good morning. So uh, good to have you. We're gonna, um, we're gonna look at the the last chapter of Mark today, and then we'll really just kind of do a wrap-up talk about the gospel. Hopefully have some time for whatever questions you might have, so even already start generating in your mind, okay, all the things that I remember about the gospel Mark um, over this whole school year, um, or if you just remember what we did today. That's fine. You know, when we get to the questions, um, that works too. Um, let's dig in. I'll pray for us, and then we'll read the entire chapter of Mark 16, and then um, dig into our handout and such. We'll have a video a little bit later, uh, have some discussion around that as well. Okay, let's, uh, let's pray. Turn to the Lord. Good morning, Lord, and thank you for uh, gathering us together today, uh, whether we're here in person or online. Thank you for being able to dig into your word. Appreciate the, the opportunity um, that we have ability to read and to see and to hear and to think about these words. Uh, pray that you would guide us by your spirit, that we would have an even greater understanding than we could ever have on our own. And that in the end, you would lead us to faith, um, both challenge us in our faith and comfort us in faith as well. Um, We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? 
But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and re reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. The end. All right. So there is the, the last of the verses of the Gospel of Mark. Um, let's take a look at your handout here. Uh, for those of you who are online, there are actually two handouts today, just to uh, know that there's one on the Gospel of Mark, and then, I mean, on, on this lesson of the Gospel of Mark, so um, for these 20 verses of Mark 16, and then there's uh, actually a larger handout, which uh, I printed out for everyone here on ledger paper. So it's a big, it's a coloring page. <laughs> Someone said, I didn't think of it that way, but that's what it, you can color it in if you want. We'll get to that after the video or during the video. Um, but we'll look at the one handout from our lesson today. Um, the ending of Mark. Um, take a note, take a look at in between in your Bibles, Take a look between verses 8 and 9. We've talked about this before maybe. I've uh, seen this other places. There, there are two places that I can think of uh, that have this very kind of uh, notation in the text. The other one is in John 8. It's right at the beginning of John 8. And you know what happens at the very beginning of John 8? Don't tell me you know. Anyone else know? The very beginning of John 8. The story that's told there is, nope, Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Remember where he says, let the one who has no sin cast the first stone? Yeah. 
it's right around that story. It says the same thing as right here. Um, look between the, there's a, in my Bible anyway, and probably in yours too, there's a line after verse eight. And then there's in brackets, a small note that says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. Huh? What's that about? Well, what's it? What was that talking about? We know um, when Mark originally wrote the gospel, he wrote it down by hand. There are no typewriters or computers back then, obviously. He wrote it down by hand. And then someone copied that. And they were very, very careful to copy down word for word, what was written in the original document that Mark wrote. And then that was distributed to another church. So one church might have had the one that he originally wrote, and another church was able to have another copy of it. And someone copied the, the original again, gave that to another church, and someone copied the original and gave it to another church. And over time, you know, well, faith would really like to have its own copy of this gospel. We don't go to the printing press. You go down to Barnes & Noble or something and buy one. You have to actually commission someone who's a scribe, who is, you know, versed in handwriting and, and reading and copying and all that. You get a scribe to copy it for you. So you, your church has its own personal copy of it. This happens hundreds and hundreds of times. Now, they were very, very careful in copying this down. So, you know, we had in existence, there were, I would guess, thousands of copies ultimately in the first century alone. But we don't have any of those. We don't have the original. We don't have the original copies of the original. None of those are still in existence because they were on paper that was very, um, very, um, degradable, right? It was very flimsy, so it didn't last very long. And why you have to have copies of the copies of the copies? Um, now, some people will say, well, once you have copies of the copies of the copies of the copies of the copies, then you, uh, it's sort of like the game of telephone, where, you know, in high school, where you had this game of telephone, you whisper something to somebody, and they whisper it to the next person, the next person, the next person, the next person. And by the time it comes back around to you, the story has no semblance in reality whatsoever. It has nothing to do at all with what I just said in the very beginning, right? When it comes back to you. That is what people use, especially skeptics who want to criticize the, the reliability of the gospel story, will tell you, well, there's, it's sort of like that game. What's the problem with that analogy? Uh, well, yes, the Word of God versus just something else. That is true. What else is wrong with the analogy? Um, what, so what do you mean you don't hear it right? Yeah, yeah, but so, and, and that's, that, that is actually the argument for, well, the, then the gospel is all messed up because you don't have the original and you don't even have the copy of the copy of the copy. You have the copy of 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 the copy, right? So 
so the accuracy, but, but why is that a bad analogy? Okay, it's given by inspiration of God. True. That that well, that is true. However, um, I want to be careful to avoid what we might call this Holy Spirit trump card. Like, you do, what I mean by this is, well, you might think that it's not true, but the Holy Spirit inspired it. So, end of story. Right, end of the argument. Here's what I think is the problem with the telephone analogy. When you're playing that game, part of the fun is purposely changing the story. Right? No, no one would do that. What are you kidding? <laughs> right? Someone, you, you hear the story and then, and then someone along the line goes, huh, here's what I heard, but I'm going to say something different. And it completely changes. Now, here's the other problem with the analogy. Um, when, when I tell the person next to me, then um, I'm only telling it to one person. And the person next to them isn't hearing what I tell them. So the person in between us could say anything they want, and it could change everything. However, with the Gospels, this is being shared out in the open in public. And so when the when the second generation, right, the second person tells the next generation, you still have first generation people who are around saying, that's not what I said. Right. So I, I say it publicly to everybody, and then the next generation says it, and, and, the, and the first generation is correcting it out in the open. right? So there are all kinds of problems with the analogy of the uh, telephone game. Get it? Ooh. Yeah. So, and you have to, if you look back at the copies of the copies of the copies that thousands of now fragments that we have of some of the scriptures, you'll find that over time there is, relatively speaking, very little change from one copy to the next, one generation to the next. There's uh, actually an incredible amount of consistency and where you have problems is generally you have a scribe that just made a mistake. They, they went like you're going along and you skip a line because your eye was drawn from one word that's similar on this line to two lines later and you just skipped over a line or, well, that's, that's unusual grammatical construction, so we should change that. And for whatever reason, a scribe thinks that he's correcting a mistake and when he's actually making the mistake instead of correcting the mistake. So, so you get stuff like that, but it's usually very minor stuff. But here's an example where, and the same with John 8, where it's stronger evidence that all these verses from verse 9 through 20, Almost universal consensus among scholars is that those eight verses, or 12 verses, sorry, that those 12 verses were not part of the original gospel of Mark. That when Mark wrote the gospel, he ended with Mark 16, verse 8. 
And somewhere along the line, probably 150 years later, someone finished the story. <laughs> but why? Why would they add 12 verses to the end? Because look at verse 8. What does it say? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, that's a horrible way to end a gospel. They were afraid and they said nothing. I mean, obviously, there was something that happened after that because the good news of the resurrection of Jesus spread and the community that first heard this gospel written by Mark when he wrote it and he shared it with his church. Obviously the gospel message had been shared and the resurrection of Jesus was very much known by people and it had spread all over the Mediterranean world at that time. Uh, Paul had been preaching and writing all his letters which predates the gospels. So when we're looking at Galatians next week and, the, and over the summer, understand that Galatians was written probably 20 years before the Gospel of Mark, which is probably the first of the Gospels to be written. So all those letters that Paul's writing, all that's happening before there's a Gospel written about the story of Jesus. Um, I don't know. It, yeah, thoughts on that? Yeah, would, would it be possible that actually the first manuscript went out and then um, Mark himself said, well, you know, that he himself added the next. Oh, is it possible? Well, the first manuscript went out and then he changed his mind. No, not changed his mind. He said. Or I wanted to add to it. Yeah. It's possible, yeah, but very. It's, it's actually very unlikely because the earliest manuscripts that we have, and when it says the earliest manuscripts, we're talking about the earliest manuscripts that we have are from over a hundred years after the gospel. So that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about probably hundreds of fragments of different, you know, copies of the gospel Mark that do not include this. Well, could it be that the original was just damaged and part of it was cut off and, well, yeah, that's possible, but um, we get right dozens and dozens of copies of the manuscript that don't have it, and there's no existent uh, manuscript that's early, early that has the gospel ending from nine to twenty, verses nine to twenty. Yeah. So, <clears throat> are you saying that? beginning of Mark is inspired by God, but the end isn't? Ooh, that's, that's a tough question. So she said, are you saying that the beginning of the gospel of Mark is inspired by God, but the end isn't? So I would say, yeah, the, what we believe about the, about the scriptures is that, the, that it is inspired by God in the original manuscripts. So when Mark wrote it, it was inspired by God. Anything that was changed or manipulated or added later is not inspired by God. Correct. Now, 
God can do amazing things through the church and he's working his Holy Spirit through the church and someone in the church wrote these 12 verses. So it is about as inspired as my sermon on Sunday because the Spirit of God is working in it. But it's not part of the original manuscript. Most likely. Now, can I say that with 100% certainty? No, I'm not going to say with 100% certainty that verses 9 through 20 were not part of the original. Because maybe the later manuscripts actually reflect the original one that was like, you know, you went like sort of tree of, well, you know, the original was here and this one had the ending and this one for some reason got damaged and didn't have the ending and so then it doesn't have it. But we have the early ones here, but we have later ones here. It could be that, but um, part of the analysis of these verses is that the style of it is different also. You know what kind of bothers me is this yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> this is so Marty saying what really bothers me is this is the book we're supposed to live by. How can we have confidence that it's all true and it's inspired by God? Because only two places, like I mentioned, only two places do you get that kind of a note right there that says the earliest manuscripts and otherwise, I mean you have you can have a very high degree of confidence that what is written in the scriptures is is the original or very, 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 very close to the original. You have confidence that 99% of it is what was written. But there's a note there to be completely transparent with you that these 12 verses are uh, probably ones that were added later. Yeah, I'm taking your word for it, Pastor. I don't know, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's what you're left with is faith, right? I mean, faith that in the whole process of it, it. I understand. Yeah. Faith in, in what it says, except there shouldn't be accepts in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There shouldn't be exceptions in the Bible. Yeah. Why? I know. I know, I just I just wrecked your faith altogether, didn't I? The last 15 minutes have just destroyed it for you. Yeah, I hope not. I hope not. Yeah, Arlo. The way I read it, Mark was written in 50 AD. Yes, Mark, yep. Mark indicates that the early church Yeah, so what Arlo's saying is, okay, Mark is written in the early 50s, Luke in the late 50s or early 60s. Um, and somewhere in the early church, they said, okay, this is a really weird way to end the gospel, to say they were trembling and, and afraid. They said nothing to anybody, period. And so then they know the end of the gospel of Luke, and it says, well, Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which, oh, look at that. It's summarized almost exactly in um, verses 12 and 13. You know, afterward, Jesus appeared in different form to two of them while they were in the, walking in the country. Oh, it sounds like the, the road to Emmaus, right, in Luke 24. And 
Exactly right. Right. Someone in the early church said, "Now it's because it's not that this stuff is inaccurate. All all that's written from nine to twenty is not contradictory to anything that's written in the Bible elsewhere. It's it's true and accurate. It's just that it's not. Um, it's most likely not part of the original text that was written there. Someone later said, "Well, here's a here's a way to summarize and." maybe bring some closure to the gospel that feels open-ended and like, wait, wait. Now, by the way, um, for a long, long time, I'm talking about 1,500 years, there was very little attention given to the gospel of Mark. Most scholars gave much more attention to the gospel of Matthew. Because there's more detail in it. There's uh, almost everything that is in Mark is also in Matthew. Something like 98% of what's in Mark is also in Matthew. So, so scholars just kind of said, well, yeah, there's Mark. It's sort of proto-Matthew. It was like a, an early form in Matthew, you know, rounded it all out. And so they didn't give a whole lot of attention to Mark anyway. And so then... You know, the, yeah, seems like it's incomplete. And so there's some things that Matthew speaks about in his gospel or Luke speaks about in his gospel that show up in these last 12 verses. Ken? We're going back 100 years? Oh, no, you're, you're like you're jumping forward from the time that this was written in the like in the 50s A.D., maybe early 60s at latest uh, to probably 100 years after that when that was added. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're, you go to Matthew, you're getting the whole story. You go to Mark, you're only getting part of it. And that's, yeah, exactly why someone took upon himself to add a few verses here. Again, I'm not going to say that with 100% certainty, but again, the um, the u- almost universal scholarly consensus is that these 12 verses were added later. Yeah. Okay. Question. Go ahead. Yeah, so Catholics believe that when the when the Lutherans, the Protestants pulled away from the church, that they they cut out part of the Bible, right? They rejected some of the books of the Bible. Yeah, there. In fact, it's it 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 would not be truly accurate to say that that was an act of the Protestants doing that. There are books that are included in sometimes it's called the Catholic Bible. There are books called the Apocrypha. They're intertestamental period books. They're between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, there are 12 of them. Some of them are actually, they're, they're additions to Esther or Daniel. 
additions to the Psalms and these other books that are that were written between the Old Testament and New Testament. Um, they never, even in the earliest church, were never truly held up to the same level as the Old and New Testament. Even in the Catholic Church. They're, they're, they're good writings. In some cases, they're historical accounts of what happened in that period. But, um, but they were never held up to the same level as Scripture in the same way that we view the Gospels and the letters of Paul and the Old Testament books. The, the church together decided this. Now, it's, it's a whole process. I mean, that too is, you know, we believe inspired by the Holy Spirit. But part of it is, you know, here's what, here, here's what the Gospels say. Um, here's what, let's say, Ephesians. Well, some people say that was written by Paul. Some people say it was not written by Paul. But um, the book of Ephesians well, everything it says in there is exactly what we're getting in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in Acts, and in Romans, and in Hebrews. And like, there's there's no contradiction. It's consistent with the testimony of the Scripture, um, and is written by one of the apostles. So um, that's included, right? There's a whole series of criteria for accepting certain books into the Bible or not. And others were just rejected by the church just because they're like, well, that's not consistent with the teaching of what the apostles taught us from Jesus. So they rejected those things outright. Not because there was anything nefarious going on, not because there was anything sinister. It was the, you know, the faithful bringing together of the scriptures, right, for, um, for the use of the church, the building up of the church. Yeah, Dennis? The, uh, wasn't the uh, Apocrypha accepted as by Trent in 1570, so that was even after, right to that time, because Luther had it in his Bible. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get too distracted by the Apocrypha right now, but yeah, go ahead, Arlen. One of the things I found that I have a Catholic problem with is that those books are not Oh yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you're, yeah. So, yeah. So the apocrypha is what you're talking about. Sometimes it'll support some Catholic teachings. There's some truth to that. Um, some things, some teachings of the Catholic Church are just extra biblical and not even a part of the apocrypha either. I don't want to get too distracted by that. But, um, all right. I want to make sure that we have some time for the video. So I do want to press on, and I want to talk about these especially eight verses um, and why, why, Matt, why Mark probably ended with verse eight, okay? Um, take a look at your handout here, uh, point B on the bottom half of the, of the sheet. And notice the outline of the Gospel of Mark. We're gonna, we're, you're going to see this in the video where the, this is like a nine-minute video that goes through the entire Gospel of Mark, outlines it, there are 
basically three main movements of the gospel of Mark. And the first seven and a half chapters, yeah, seven and a half chapters of Mark really are act one. When Jesus is in Galilee, Galilee is in the north part of Israel. Israel is sort of a narrow, tall country. And the north is Galilee and the south is Judea. In between is Samaria. So Jesus is in Galilee for his early ministry. He's healing people and teaching and casting out demons and all that's going on. Then Acts 2 starts in the middle of chapter 8 and runs through chapter 10. And is Jesus on his way between Galilee and Jerusalem. And from chapter 11 to the end, it which really represents nearly a half of the entire gospel, Jesus is... Um, Jesus in Jerusalem where he's with his disciples and arrested and convicted and crucified. And then, of course, rise from the dead. So the three moments are Jesus in Galilee, Jesus in Jerusalem, and in between, Jesus on the way between Galilee and Jerusalem. Oh, go figure, right? It's like, oh, duh. Uh, but in, in that movement in the middle, he's describing what is going to happen with him. Three times he predicts that he is going to suffer and die and rise again. Um, this is going to be highlighted in the video as well when we start this. Look at the bullet point underneath the four points of the outline. Each major section of Mark includes and almost concludes with the significant confusion among the disciples. The disciples are like... Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And at the end of the first section, Jesus is saying, do you still not understand? You have eyes to see, but you don't see. You have ears to hear, but you don't hear. You know, and so the disciples are deaf and blind, right? There's confusion going on. That's the end of the first act. And then throughout the, throughout the second part of the gospel, this middle section, where Jesus is between Galilee and Jerusalem, then there's ongoing confusion again. And wait, wait a second. You're going to suffer and die. No, 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 never, Lord. And he just says, get behind me, Satan. You know, that, that happens. And, um, yeah, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And the disciples are going, wait, what? Because what are they expecting the Messiah to be? What are they expecting the... The, the savior to be someone who comes and dominates the Romans and kicks out the Romans and restores the kingdom of Israel and takes the throne as king. That's what they're expecting. But what is Jesus in reality? Not an earthly king, but eternal king. And a king who actually lays down his life and suffers for his people. And so at the end of each of those sections, really, there's confusion. So how would you conclude the third section? By bringing all the confusion into clarity, right? 
No, he actually concludes this third section the same way he concluded the other ones by saying they were trembling and bewildered and they said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. And because it leaves open-ended like that, as a reader, you're forced to say, how would I respond? How will I respond? Will I respond in faith like the centurion who said, surely this was the Son of God? Or will I be like the disciples who are afraid and they say nothing? Which is it going to be? Right? So the way that Mark ends the gospel with, with chapter 16, verse 8, leaves it sort of open. Now, I'll give you another example where Jesus himself does this. He has, uses this technique. The parable of the prodigal son. Right, son squanders the, the inheritance. You know, he goes off to another country and he wastes it all. And then he's um, he's desperate. And he says, "Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and I'll say, I don't deserve to be your son. Hire me on as one of your servants." And uh, he runs back home. His father embraces him. Right, throws a party. What happens after he begins the party? The older brother comes along. He comes. He's working in the fields. He comes back in. He's, there's a party going on. He asks one of the servants, "What's going on? Your brother was was gone. He's back again. Your father's throwing a party for him because he was lost. And now he's found. And and he his son stays out. Right, the older son stays outside, grumping about it. And his father comes out and says, "What's wrong? You know, I've been with you all this time. You never gave me even a young lamb that I could have a party with my my friends. But now." This, this son of yours comes back after wasting everything and you kill the fattened calf for him? Are you kidding? And the father says, um, son, we had to party because this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost, now he's found. And then the parable ends. Does the brother go into party or does he stay outside moping? And Jesus very intentionally, I believe, leaves the parable open-ended. Wondering, did he listen to his father and come in and join the celebration? Or is he going to be like the Pharisees who grump about these new people coming in, even though they never followed God, but now they're prostitutes and everyone else coming into to Jesus? And, well, which is it going to be? It's almost like Jesus tells this so that every single person who ever hears the parable has to wrestle with the question, am I going to celebrate or am I going to stay outside moping? So the Gospel of Mark just kind of ends this way. It's open-ended and it forces you to examine yourself. Am I going to be one who celebrates or am I going to be one who grumps and moans? Am I going to be afraid and say nothing, or am I going to be one who has faith? All right, I want to watch the video. Like I said, it's about nine minutes long, and then we'll have ten minutes or so to discuss afterwards. This is sort of a wrap-up of the entire book. Did we look at the video at the very beginning of Mark? No, I don't think so. Uh, it's just a good way to, like, oh, yeah, we talked about Oh, yeah, we talked about Oh, yeah, I remember that. And then just, it's just almost like a way of tying a ribbon around it 
little bow and all right, we'll start the video. Trust that everyone online is going to be able to see this as well. Give me just a second. So this is from what is called the Bible Project. You can go to bibleproject.com and there is a summary for every book of the Bible, just like this animated, illustrated, um, just like the coloring page. Yeah. So you'll see the coloring page unfold. I want to encourage, so you have the, you have that whole sheet. So you see the big picture, but I would encourage you to look at the screen. So you're actually seeing it unfold. And then you have that as a reference in front of you as well. And again, for those online, you can see that there's a, in the, in the download uh, location, the link that's shared in the chat, you can see the, that there's a download for the, uh, for the handout that has the final version of what you're about to see unfold in the animation. The Gospel According to Mark. It's one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus, and our earliest historical traditions link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark, or John Mark. He was a co-worker with Paul and a close partner with Peter. And in fact, an ancient church historian named Papias, he recalls that Mark had collected all of the eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter and then shaped them into this account. But Mark didn't just randomly throw the pieces together. He's carefully designed this story of Jesus. In the first line of the book, Mark makes this claim about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now what's interesting is that this is the only time Mark is going to tell you what he thinks. For the rest of the book, he's going to influence you by simply putting Jesus' actions and words in front of you and showing you how other people react to him. Now Mark's designed the story of Jesus as a drama with three acts. The first one set in Galilee, the third one is set in Jerusalem, and the second act shows Jesus on the way from one place to the other. And each of the acts focuses on repeated theme. So in act one, everybody's blown away by Jesus and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? In act two, it's the disciples who are struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in act three, we watch the surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it unfolds. After the opening line, Mark begins with a quotation from the ancient prophets Isaiah and Malachi who said that God would send a messenger to Israel to prepare them for when God would show up himself to rescue his people and become their king. And Mark introduces John the Baptist as that messenger and then right when you expect God to show up personally, Mark introduces Jesus. And as he comes onto the scene, the heavens open, God's spirit descends on Jesus and God says, you are my beloved son. After this, Mark places in front of us a summary of Jesus' core message. He went about Galilee announcing the good news that God's kingdom has come near. Jesus is carrying forward the story from the Old Testament scriptures about God's rescue operation for his world. Through Jesus, God is restoring his reign over the world by confronting and defeating evil and its hold on people's lives. And then by inviting them to live under his reign by following Jesus. 
From here, Mark's given us a big block of stories showing us Jesus' power as he brings God's kingdom. He goes about healing people whose bodies are sick or broken or under the oppression of dark spiritual powers. And Jesus even does something that for Jewish people only God has the right to do. He forgives people's sins. And Jesus' actions here produce lots of different responses. So some people follow him and become his disciples. Other people don't know what to think, and still others reject him completely, especially Israel's leaders who accuse him of blaspheming God and being empowered by evil. But Jesus isn't surprised by these responses. In fact, he draws attention to it. In chapter 4, Mark has collected many of Jesus' parables about the hidden, mysterious nature of God's kingdom. And Jesus says that his message is like seed falling on different types of soil. Some are receptive, some are not. Or it's like a mustard seed that's very tiny, it seems insignificant, but then it grows huge and surprises everyone. Jesus' point is that he really is the Messiah, bringing God's kingdom, but it doesn't look like what anybody expected. And this growing confusion about Jesus among the crowds is connected to a key idea Mark emphasizes at the end of Act 1, that even among Jesus' disciples there's confusion. Even they are struggling to grasp who Jesus really is, and that brings us to Act 2. It begins with a crucial conversation. Jesus takes the disciples aside and he asks, who do you all say that I am? And Peter speaks up saying, you're the Messiah. But it becomes clear that for Peter this means that Jesus is a victorious military king from the line of David who will rescue Israel from the Romans. But for Jesus to be the Messiah means that he's the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53 who will bring God's rule by giving up his life in Jerusalem. And the disciples, they don't get it. They think following King Jesus is going to mean fame and status and importance, and Jesus makes it clear that following him is actually like dying, like carrying your own cross. It means rejecting violence and pride and selfishness and giving one's life out for others in acts of service and love. He has the same conversation with them two more times, and it all culminates in Jesus' important statement that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples still don't get it. They respond in confusion and fear. And so here in Act 2, Mark has placed another key story that echoes the book's introduction. Jesus takes three of his disciples up to a mountain, and he's suddenly transformed. He's radiating with light and glory, and a cloud envelops them. Now, this is just like the glory of the God of Israel that showed up long ago on Mount Sinai. And then the two prophets who stood in God's presence on Mount Sinai, Moses and Elijah, they appear next to Jesus as God announces again, this is my beloved son. Now, by placing this story in the middle of all these conversations in Act 2, Mark is making an astounding claim that Jesus, God's Son, is the physical embodiment of God's own glory. And in Jesus, the glorious God of Israel is going to become king by suffering and dying for the sins of his own people. It's a puzzling claim that confuses and scares the disciples as they leave the mountain. Which brings us to Act 3. Jesus makes a very public royal entry into Jerusalem for Passover. People are hailing him as the Messiah. Then he enters into the temple courtyard and he asserts his royal authority by running out the thieves and crooks and stopping the sacrificial system. Then this kicks off a whole week of Jesus debating and confronting the leaders of Israel, condemning their hypocrisy, and so they set in motion a plan to have him 
killed. And Jesus warns his disciples, predicting that Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed within a generation, and his disciples will be persecuted just like him, until he returns one day to bring God's kingdom fully over the world. And it all leads up to the final night. Jesus has his last Passover meal with the disciples, a symbolic meal that told the story of Israel's liberation from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And Jesus takes these symbols and he gives them new meaning. They point to the liberation from sin and death that will happen through the death of the suffering servant Messiah. From here, the story rushes forward to Jesus' arrest, his trial before Israel's priests and the Roman governor Pilate, all resulting in Jesus' crucifixion. And it culminates in a key scene that matches the important scenes from Acts 1 and 2, except this time it's darkness that descends, not a cloud. And instead of the divine voice from heaven, it's Jesus' voice crying out before he dies. And then most surprising is that it's a Roman soldier who sees Jesus die, who grasps and then announces who Jesus is. This man was the Son of God. He's the first person in the story to recognize the story's shocking claim about Jesus' identity, that it's the crucified Son of God who's the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who died for his friends and for his enemies. After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb, and on the first day of the new week, two women from his disciples come to the tomb, and they discover that the tomb is empty, the stones rolled away, and an angelic man informs them that Jesus isn't here, that he's risen from the dead. And so he orders them to go and tell this good news to the other disciples, that Jesus is alive, that he'll meet them back up in Galilee. And the women, they're freaked out. Mark says that they fled from the tomb in terror, telling no one, for they were afraid. And that's how the book ends, with Jesus' disciples showing the same kind of fear and confusion that concluded Acts 2 and 1. Now, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the Gospel of Mark has more to its ending, where Jesus appears, he speaks to his disciples, but there's also a note there telling you that that ending is not part of the original book, that it's only found in later, less reliable manuscripts. Now, it's possible that the original ending got lost, or that Mark actually never finished writing his account, but it's more likely that this abrupt ending is intentional to make a point. The entire story has focused on the shocking claim that puzzled Jesus' disciples from beginning beginning to end, that it's the suffering, crucified, and risen Jesus who's the Messiah, the Son of God, that God's love and upside-down kingdom were revealed as Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so this story ends without closure, and it forces you, the reader, to grapple with this very strange and scandalous claim about Jesus. And are you going to run away like the women? Or are you going to recognize Jesus as your king and go and tell the good news? And only you can answer that question. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if, if you're thinking, whoa, my mind is just overwhelmed, blown, um, go to BibleProject.com. BibleProject.com, and you can watch that again, <laughs> review it. Uh, I've, I've seen this several times, and every single time, I'm like, oh yeah, something else pops out, and it's good. So, any just immediate reaction to that, something that, oh yeah, that pulled it together, or something that wasn't quite clear, or hey, pastor, you just said the same thing, or I don't know, whatever you want to, Dennis? Like Peter. 
Squares. Oh, gosh, yeah, that's the way that he, he's a blockhead <laughs> and he's d depicted that way. Yeah. yeah. What you can do with illustrations, right? Yeah. 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 Th th so ultimately, the disciples got it because they went out and preached the word and the, the word spread. Right. Um, which we can attribute to, uh, at least in part, if not fully, the fact that they received the Holy Spirit. When Jesus breathed out the Holy Spirit upon them, the day of Pentecost, right, spirit came on them and they were empowered in a, in a whole new way that they had not been before. So, yeah, there's that. Well, Jesus said that, yeah, you will do more than what I have done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is amazing. Wait, he's God, and wait, and you're saying that we're going to do more than what you did? How is that true? You're, you're God. Um, yeah. Ken? Yeah, okay, so you're saying, well, this question naturally arises. What about verse 16? Something that we actually use to say, wait, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And you're like, well, isn't that true, Pastor? And you're like, well, yeah, like I said earlier, all these verses between 9 and 20 are true. It's not like they're contradicting what the Scripture says. In some places, it's summarizing what, what it says somewhere else. Um it's, it's bringing out the, the truth, but in words that are not exactly the way it's written somewhere else. Um, but notice that, you know, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So that means you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, no, it just says also whoever does not believe will be condemned. So it's, it's faith that saves, right? It's, it's not so much about baptism. Baptism is one way that God is using by his Holy Spirit to plant the seed of faith and bring people to faith and call them into the family and right so that's that's part of it but it's not the whole story yeah other yeah Sue. yeah if you're baptized Yeah, so you said about three days before he w he died of brain cancer, he was baptized. Yeah, by his choice. Then, yeah, I mean, it's the faith that led him to want to be baptized that is what saves him. So will he be in heaven? Yeah, I believe so. You know, his public confession seems to indicate that he would be in heaven because he believed and wanted to be baptized. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The question about what about the little baby that is not baptized yet? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so the that that baby doesn't have the, as you said, the mental capacity to be able to believe and express faith and all that. 
Right. Um, this this kind of gets down to the the fundamental difference between what we believe about baptism and what some other Christian denominations believe about baptism, and that is, um, like some people say, well, you can't baptize babies because they don't they can't choose. Right? Well, what we believe about baptism is that God is at work in it. It's not my work; it's God's work. So. Uh, now, in your brother's case, where he came to faith apart from baptism and then chose to be baptized, you know, that's one thing. When you're talking about um, infants, what we believe about baptism is that God is actually doing the work. So it's not about the baby's faith. In fact, God is planting a seed of faith there that is going to continue to nurture and grow. You don't, you don't see the fruit of that when you have just a little seed or sprout that's coming out of the soil you know, it takes some time before there's some fruit that comes from it um, where they're able to express their faith. But God is doing something there in the baptism miraculously that um, is apart from the. And it's why when Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is in John 3. And Nicodemus says, well, I can't enter into my mother's womb and be born a second time. He says, no, no, no born of water and the spirit. So you're born physically and then you're reborn spiritually. So that it's, I always describe this when we're talking about baptism in church, that there's a resurrection that happens there. There's a dead spirit that is raised to life with the promise that if my spirit is raised to life, then in the end, when Jesus comes again, my body will also rise from the dead. It's a preview of physical resurrection. All that's happening in baptism, right? There's a lot of different imagery that we can use there, but but ultimately it's God's work apart from us. So then a baby that's baptized 35 years later doesn't have any belief. Well, a baby who's baptized, but then 35 years later, yeah. Because that seed has never been nurtured or they, you know, they walked away from their faith or rejected it outright. You know, so baptism is not some automatic, like, well, baptized and you're saved. You know, it's like, um, no, because you, you could still walk away from it. It would be like, um, I, I would say, you know, when, when you're talking about resurrection and the conversion of a person who is moving from unbelief to belief, is very much like if you went to a corpse, right? Someone who is dead. If you go to a funeral and they have a casket and there's someone lying there who is dead, you cannot very well just go up to them and say, you know, if you just think about it hard enough, you can breathe again. <laughs> well, that, no, you can't do that. In the same way, I have no power to convince somebody to have faith in Jesus. It takes an act of God to raise the dead. I, literally, truly, it takes an act of God. God has to be at work. And the same thing when someone goes from unbelief to belief, it is resurrection of the dead. It takes an act of God to convince somebody to move them from unbelief to faith. Anybody can baptize, right? You don't have to be a yeah, you don't have to be a pastor. Anybody can baptize. Yeah, 
yeah, absolutely. Right, 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 right. But so, so to continue the, the imagery then, so let's say God raises that person right up out of the casket. Gives them new life. I mean, that would be something, wouldn't it be like Lazarus when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And everyone is just like, I've never seen anything like it, My reaction would be instantly fall to the ground with my face to the ground because there's no way I deserve to stand in the presence of the one who just raised the dead. Miraculously, that's not what the reaction was. They wanted to kill Jesus after this. I don't know why. Um, but let's say that that... God just did this amazing work and he raised this person right out of the casket. Well, that person can take that as a gift and say, I'm going to live my life now. I've got a second chance and I'm going to live my life for Jesus because he raised me from the dead or can reject it outright and neglect his body and eat all junk and smoke and do drugs and everything else and completely destroy, live recklessly and, and not value that life at all, right? Same thing with someone who's baptized, who's been raised from the dead in the spirit and then lives their life recklessly and rejects the gift that God has given. It's not an automatic, well, because I'm baptized, automatic ticket to heaven. But, it, you know, it still has to be nurtured and that faith grow. And Marty? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're taking on a responsibility. So, right, right. You baptize it and you just baptize it. Yeah. Because I was going to baptize my grandson, mm-hmm. and Pastor Dan says, you're taking on a big responsibility because you're promising yeah. that you're going to bring it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, why, that's why we have parents and sponsors, and we say, you know, are you ready to take on this responsibility of raising this child of faith and uh, helping parents raise the child of faith? And you're saying yes, with the help of God. You know, this is a big responsibility because I need to now nurture this faith uh, that we have uh, witnessed God planting a seed for in this child in baptism. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff. We're, we're at time, so I understand, you know, you're packing up, ready to go now, go get lunch and everything else, but it's been great being with you. It's been really great studying the Gospel of Mark. Hope you enjoyed it as well. And uh, again, next week we'll be into the uh, book of Galatians. So, yeah, yeah, good stuff. Have a great day, everybody, and a wonderful week of the Lord.